0: great promises, and Jacob was a deceitful person seeking those promises. He really believed them, but he went about getting them in an unhelpful way, you could say. And so he has to flee from his brother. Esau wanted to kill him. And that's where we left off the story, and here we pick up again in Genesis 29. Jacob is journeying uh, far east to a place called Haran. And you'll see the map there. I think it's helpful to have this particular this morning just for the sake of knowing what's going on in his life. This man, Jacob, is fleeing from his brother to avoid being killed. And look how far he's going up to that northern part where the red arrow is. He's running away to try to find the blessings of God apart from his family, the pleasure of his mother and father and uh, the vindictive and evil uh, murderous desires of his brother, and still in some way he is looking for what could be called God's blessing upon his life. And what follows from this story is a series of events to see what exactly is this promise that was given to him. Because just like it was with Abraham, and here it is with Jacob, it doesn't seem as though the things that were promised to him are actually coming about. If you remember, Abraham was promised to have a whole lot of children, and he only had one. And here, Jacob is promised to have all these blessings and have the inheritance and the wealth that comes from the family, and here he's in a strange land, completely destitute and poor. So if the blessings really did fall upon him, the question for us is, what happened to him? What, what are these blessings from God that apparently are his? So he comes to this region up to the north, and he finds a large well that's covered by a stone. And he finds the herdsmen there, and he starts talking with them, and he asks, do you know a man named Laban? Laban is Jacob's uncle, who lives in this region. That is, uh, the brother of his mother, that's how his father found his mother, coming up to this land earlier in the book of Genesis. And so he's retracing his father's steps to try to find a wife for himself. And they do, they know of Laban in this area. And as he's speaking to them, Rachel, the the daughter of Laban, approaches the well. We pick up in verse 10. It says, as he was talking to these herdsmen, uh, as soon as Jacob saw Rachel, that is the daughter of Laban, his mother's brother, and the sheep of Laban, his mother's brother, Jacob came near and rolled the stone from the well's mouth and watered the flock of Laban, his mother's brother. Then Jacob kissed Rachel and wept out loud. And if you think that is weird, that is your sign that it's going to get really weird. (laughs) And Jacob, can you imagine that as a first date? Like, oh my goodness, how would that? Well, and Jacob told Rachel that he was her father's kinsman and that he was Rebecca's son. And she ran and told her father. And so here Jacob stayed with Laban for a month from that point. We'll pick up at verse 16. Um, Laban said to him, because you're my family, it is. should you work for me for nothing? What are your wages? How should I pay you as you live here with me for this time? And verse 16 is where we're told that Laban had two daughters. The name of the older was Leah and the name of the younger was Rachel. Leah's eyes were weak, but Rachel's, Rachel was beautiful in form and appearance. Now, Jacob loved Rachel, and he said, I will serve you, Laban, seven years for your younger daughter, Rachel. And Laban said, well, it's better that I give her to you than any other man. Stay with me. So Jacob served seven years for Rachel, and they seemed to be but a few days because of the love he had for her. And so the time completed after those seven years, and Jacob approached Laban and said, now let me marry Rachel. So Laban had a big wedding feast. And what happens is remarkable is the weirdness of this whole story is that he transitions his older daughter Leah in place of Rachel. And then uh, mysteriously, uh, Jacob's deceived and ends up marrying the older daughter. And if you thought the kissing and the crying thing uh, was weird, well, there's another one and we'll explain later. And then Jacob, of course, goes the next morning to find out he had consummated a marriage with another woman. How does that happen? Um, And he says, what have you done? It's a good question to ask uh, your father-in-law now. And uh, he said, it's not our custom in this uh, country to give the uh, younger daughter before the first. And he's like, oh, shucks, now I'm married to Leah. Well, he says, well, here's the deal. I will offer you my second daughter. Uh, next week you can marry her too. And in the ancient world, that's on the table. And he says, okay. And then he puts it at the back end, but you have to work for me another seven years. And here we are. The story is weird. And it's not over. Verse 31, we pick up. When the Lord saw, oh, I'm sorry. Uh, we have to clarify. So now Jacob is uh, married to two women, Rachel and Leah. Leah has been given a slave woman named Zilpah. And Rachel's been given a slave woman named Bilhah. That means they were coming from somewhat wealthy family. This is something of a dowry uh, that Laban gives away uh, these two servant women, almost kind of um, as a marriage gift to his daughters uh, in some weird way. Um, It says here that Jacob loved Rachel more than Leah. So Jacob loved Rachel more than Leah. Picking up verse 31, Then the Lord saw that Leah was hated. Notice how the Bible uses the word hatred. It doesn't mean that Jacob hated her. It just means he preferred another. So if the Bible ever says that God hated people, it doesn't mean God hates in an evil way. It means that he has a preference towards certain other things like righteousness. So the Lord saw that Leah was hated, and he opened her womb, but Rachel was barren. And Leah conceived and bore a son, and she called his name Reuben. For she said, because the Lord has looked upon my affliction, for now my husband will love me. She's trying to earn the love of her husband. She conceived again and bore a son and said, because the Lord has heard that I am hated, uh, he has given me this son also. And she called his name Simeon. Simeon means to hear. All these children's names uh, mean something in reference to how they're feeling at the moment of their pregnancy, which was a common practice to do that back then. Uh, Some Children might be named a lot of different things nowadays if you were to take the emotion in your childbirth and put that into a name. Uh, you can only imagine um, pain or anger would be walking through the halls. Um, again, verse 34, it says, she conceived and bore a son and said, now this time my husband will be attached to me. That's the, name of the meaning of the name Levi, and I'll call his name Levi. And then she conceived another child and bore a son and said, she changed her heart and said, this time I will praise the Lord. I'm not looking for my son, uh, my, fa- uh, my husband's affection. Therefore, I'll call his name Judah. And when Rachel saw that she bore Jacob no children, she envied her sister. Would you imagine? Okay, I couldn't see how this went wrong. Uh, she said to Jacob, give me children or I die. And Jacob's anger was kindled against Rachel and said to her, am I in the place of God and withheld from you the fruit of the womb? So, naturally, to only make this thing more complicated, Rachel gave her slave woman to Jacob, his Bilhah. And that produced a child named Dan. Then again, uh, Bilhah and Jacob produced another child named Naphtali. When Leah saw that she had ceased bearing children, she took her servant Zilpah, not to be outdone by her sister. This is, this is a Jerry Springer episode if there was. Jacob went and, of course, found Zilpah and gave her to her husband, and that produced another child named Gad. And Jacob and Zilpah also produced yet another child named Asher. Now, Jacob and Leah, again, after um, setting a deal over some mandrakes, buying off your husband, uh, had another child named Issachar. um, And she said this, God has given me my wages because I gave my servant to my husband. So she rationalizes this as a great thing. She says, because I gave my servant to my husband, I have yet again bore another child named Issachar. Issachar. Imagine what that name might mean. Jacob and Leah also produced another son named Zebulun. There are a lot of children in this family. And then lastly of all, it closes with this. Rachel, who in this point has never bore one child this whole time. It says in verse 22, And God remembered Rachel, and God listened to her and opened her womb. She conceived and bore a son, and said, God has taken away my reproach. And she called his name Joseph, saying, May the Lord add to me another son. And if you can imagine... That you have Jacob with his favored wife, who can't bear children, finally produces one child from the favored wife, and then you realize how, as you read through the rest of the story, everybody hates Joseph. And they want to kill Joseph. It was the one child that his favored, most lovely, beautiful wife, Rachel, could bear. This is a story of all stories. This is a remarkable story. It's bizarre. It is a story uh, that relates to everything you've ever heard before. I didn't say one thing in here that you have not experienced in the real world. The, the, The world is full of stories. We live lives. Our lives are shrouded in the past. We have different times people's days, dates, events, there are so many things we have done with our lives, and we are still living our lives. And our lives oftentimes are messy and weird and things you wouldn't want read on a Sunday morning in front of everyone else. Fortunately, everyone here has passed away and the embarrassment with them. So now we have the privilege to be able to learn from their mistakes, but not just their mistakes. We are not going moralistic. We are preaching the gospel, The reason this is all important is not because there was a weird family at some point in time. Because I think we would all raise our hand and say, well, that's here too. The reason this is important is because this weird family was given something remarkable. The transcendent eternal promises of God. The eternal gospel. The blessings of Abraham. And so, therefore, we find in this story how the promises, the peace, the prosperity, the blessings that were given to this family could ever possibly remain. How could these blessings be, as the word is, inviolable? That is, unable to be violated, unable to be infringed upon, corrupted, tampered with, attacked. What makes this blessing, the blessing that was given to Abraham, inviolable, unable to be undone. Because everything in this story makes you think it doesn't stand a chance. The promises of God stand no chance in all this. And the question you and I would often have as we walk with the Lord in this life is, how could God bless me? How could he continue to be pleased with me? There are things in our past. There are pages in our story that are worse than this. How could you really believe that you are blessed and that he would not change his mind? Well, we have to look at the source of it all. We have to look at the nature of where this blessing came from. So, for example, if I were to... If you were to tell me someone came from Antarctica, I would say, well, because you came from Antarctica, I imagine you are able to handle cold weather pretty well. Or if someone said, well, I came from sub saharan Africa... Well, because you came from that region, I imagine you're able to handle pretty uh, temperature climates very well. If you know something of a person's origin, you're going to know something about their nature. If you know something about the origin of this blessing, you're going to know its nature. You're going to know how it is by nature inviolable, unable to be corrupted. The gospel of Jesus Christ has its origin in this story. And you need to know this story not for the sake of the entertainment value. You need to know this story for the sake of knowing this is your story. You have to know that God will not leave you. You have to know that all your sins really can be forgiven. You have to know that in the darkest and the deepest times of your conviction or hypocrisy, that his blessing remains upon your head. You cannot lose it. It cannot be violated. To uncover the nature of this blessing, we go to Abraham, who was given the promise of having a great name, that is a dynasty, kingdoms would come from him, a great nation that is a place where there would be people gathered, and he would be a world blessing, a blessing to all the people in the world. Now Isaac was given this blessing, and it was inviolable, as we saw earlier, when he came to his father, and his father mistakenly blessed him, thinking it was his older brother, and he found out his mistake, and what he said was, I have blessed him, and he will be blessed. It cannot be altered, revoked, or taken away. It cannot be violated. So what exactly is this blessing? What is the nature of it, and why do we know it will last? It's like when you have um, someone, not me, I've never had a sports car, I have a Scion, it's very uh, a lot of headroom. Um, but I have friends uh, that get these really awesome sport cars, and they start driving around, and they just want to test it. You just want to see what it is. What is it capable of, right? And so you, you grind it out to the to red line into the sixth gear, and it's just fun. It's just fun to see what it can do. And so here is, it, it's almost like in God's wisdom, in his word, he, he places a blessing, and then it always happens that right after that, right after a promise is given, he lets you just test it out and see really if you could drive this thing off the road, if you could destroy it. And if there is a way to do it, Jacob is trying his very best. His, his very best. Like there, you, almost at every turn, you could not make a worse decision. And so here he's given this great blessing and we're given right after that a very bizarre story. And you knew it was going to be weird when he saw his cousin kissed her and then started blubbering all over her shoulder. <laughs> if you imagine any first date that went that way, there probably wouldn't be a second date. But I could see you know, Rachel coming home and saying, oh, I really like desperate men. I think I might go out for a second date with him. <laughs> um, and so that is the beginning of the weirdness. Um, and so it follows that everything she and he do he, first off, marries multiple women. That's never a good way to go. And should, of course, make sure they're sisters, because that would be a good idea. Uh, plan uh, to play favorites against one another. Why not? If you're marrying sisters, play favorites. Uh, make one envy the other with a competition and rivalry. Seems like a good recipe for success. But then what you do on top of all of that is you make the children the objects of the competition. Why not? Let's mess up the kids, too. And so... That's exactly what happens. Twelve boys follow. And they are, they are in the hotbed of this messy situation of uh, rivalry and competition. And so, this is exactly how it is. Rachel, in verse 8 of chapter 30, says, With a mighty wrestling, I wrestled against my sister and prevailed. And so, of course, the child's name is Naphtali from uh, Nathal, which means to wrestle. So, you actually have to say to your son you're named after how much I hate your aunt. (laughs) Like, that is actually what the story is. And then what goes further is there's a stalemate, and neither of the women are producing many children at this point in the story. And naturally, the Zilpah and Billah start entering the story. And then in verse 18 of chapter 30, Leah says, God has given me my wages because I have given my servant to my husband. So I'll call him Issachar. Uh, from the word uh, sakar, which means wages. Uh, So that child's name means I have hired out, essentially prostitutized another woman for the sake of burying you, my son whom I love, named wages. And so this is, when you get down to the nitty gritty, there is a comedic levity to it. The beauty of it is, wow, my life's not that bad. (laughs) Right? And if he couldn't screw it up, Can you? If he could not screw up the blessings of God, could you do it? He wound that engine out. He tried to test it out, the new car called the blessings of God. And he couldn't even break it. It's still maintained for him. Because what happens from all this, remember, as Jacob was receiving the blessing for the first time from his father... He was blaspheming God. As he was receiving the blessing, he was blaspheming God. In Genesis 27, Isaac says, How have you found that meal so quickly that I told you to go prepare? You're supposed to hunt the animal, kill the animal, prepare the animal, and feed me this meal. And he did none of that. And so what he says is, My father, the Lord. The Lord, our God, your and my, we have the same God. His name is the Lord, and he has granted me success. And as a result of that lie, blessings came upon his head. And it wasn't as though he just said, God gave me success. He said, Yahweh gave me success. He took the covenantal, gracious, holy name of God, Yahweh. And turned it into a blasphemous lie. Taking his name in vain. And it was in that process. Of that high, high handed sin. That he became blessed. How could you ever outrun the love of God. In the gospel of Jesus Christ. How could anything in your life that you are ashamed of. Ever ruin this. The very nature of the blessing, it is inviolable. It cannot be altered or undone. So what happens is, Jacob makes a royal mess of his family, yet his family is still blessed and fruitful. And the wives are all envying and hating one another, yet they can't stop making kids. They're still blessed. In the midst of all the mess, what comes out of this is 12 boys who become the 12 tribes of Israel, which is the nation, which is the fulfillment of the very blessing that was given. In the midst of all of that, God will do what God wants to do. And when he says he's going to save you, you will be saved. And you cannot revoke that. It is inviolable. And if he said he's going to save the world through the nation of Israel and the Messiah to come, it doesn't matter how many wives he marries. It doesn't matter how many things he does wrong. God is going to save the world through his son, Jesus Christ. And all the nations will bow before his toes. And it will happen. And they will do it with pleasure. He will change their heart to love those things. This is the blessing that you and I have been given in Jesus Christ. The very thing, the very thing that we have is that we are brought in Christ, the scriptures say. And inside of him, nothing can touch you. Inside of him, you are held clean and pure. All of the curses, all of the wrath, Everything that could ever come upon your life is blockaded from you. It is covered from you by being in Jesus, inside of him, covered and encapsulated and wrapped in his blessings. This is the reason Jesus came into the world to do everything in his own body so that we could be in his life, in his body, in his flesh, in his blood, in his time and history. Jacob's righteousness was lived out thousands of years later. Your righteousness was lived out thousands of years before this. It was all there. And everything you do is irrelevant now. All of your sins, it doesn't matter. It was all in Christ, the blessings to be had. The very thing that they were seeking. The highlight of their stories was the antithesis of their faith. So... Abraham was particularly the thing with Abraham in his stories. He was promised to have many children. Particularly promised to have a child to come. And he just wouldn't get the child. He had to wait, he had to wait, he had to wait. God was deliberately not giving him that one thing he was really looking for. In order to stretch him out to trust. To, to bring faith out of his heart. To pull it out from the belly of his soul. That he would have to rely upon God. So the very thing is this, Abraham had few children, but he's a very wealthy man. And the reverse is here for Jacob. Jacob had a lot of children, but he's a very poor man. But the blessings was both. You're supposed to have nations and dynasties and wealth and land, and lots of children. But both are getting the opposite side of the spectrum. So when Abraham sends Isaac, his son, to go get married, he sends him up to Haran like Jacob went today, it's a completely different story. The servant of Abraham goes, and he has gold rings and bracelets and all this stuff to make a bridal price to go and get a woman for his son, which ends up being Jacob's mother, and brings her down and pays for it outright. But here you have Jacob, who has no money at all, but just the same with Abraham. Abraham was all about getting one son, and he couldn't get that son for the longest time. Now, what does Jacob really want? What does Jacob really, really want? Evidently, as we read his story, he wants a lot of money. That's why you go after the firstborn birthright. The the reason he wanted his brother's birthright is because as firstborn, he was to inherit double the portion of the inheritance. He would have two times more than Jacob because he was older. And so Jacob said, well, I want more money. And so he went for the birthright. And then he wanted the blessing. He wanted to have all this fruitful cattle and land and money. And what do we have, Jacob, here? He's got the birthright. He's got the blessing. And so you have to wonder, what kind of birthright and blessing produces a poor man in a strange land who can't even offer a bridal price for his wedding? He actually has to offer his own labor up. Seven years to work for the woman, Rachel. He's as poor as they come than just what he thought. I don't know. Maybe as a Christian pastor, maybe they were about Christ. Maybe all the desires of your heart have to come to Jesus. Maybe it's not about anything else except him. And the new heavens and the new earth. The blessings are the blessings of his blood and the promised outpouring of the Holy Spirit to renew the mind. The reason he wasn't getting all the blessings he thought is he didn't know the nature of the blessings he was given. And you and I, if you are blessed in Christ, you value God more than riches, his word more than the most purest gold. This means that you are blessed. You are being formed and fashioned for a new heavens and a new earth, for an age to come. An age in which Abraham only knew part. And all of the loves and desires of your heart are being conformed to this one great jewel and treasure. Which is Jesus Christ in Revelation who is the light of heaven itself. There will not even be a sun because his glory and his miraculous wonder will fill the created order. This is the blessing that he had and he barely knew he even wanted. This is the gospel that is given to us. We know the grounds of this blessing cannot be altered because they rely, they rely upon grace. They are received by grace through faith. They are received by grace through faith. He believed in these things. He had no idea what he was looking for, but God gave them to him, a simple promise. Romans 4 draws this out beautifully. Romans 4, 13 to 14 says, For the promise to Abraham... He would inherit what Jesus was speaking about when he came and void. And then Romans 4.16 picks up to say, that is why it depends on faith, in order that the promise may rest on grace and the guarant- and be guaranteed to all of his offspring, not only to the adherents of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. So Paul in Romans 4 is saying, Abraham is the father of us all. Anyone who has faith like Abraham, he is your father. Now, the reason we take it by faith, because the promise depends upon faith. It depends upon faith, the blessings of the promise, because the promise was given by grace. If you don't receive it by faith, then it's not by grace. If the promise comes to you, Jesus, take him. He is yours right now. Fall on your face and have him. He will reveal himself to you. That's that's the promise, and you don't deserve that at all. It's unmerited entirely. It's 100% of grace. If that's the case, the only way to receive such a thing is to take it, believe it, accept it, and live it. Do not try to understand it in the sense that you should work for it or understand how to bring these promises or blessings of God into your life now through time and space. You accept it, and that makes it unalterable. That's why it can't be broken, because it would never base upon his performances. It was never based in one line of the whole story we just read. Not one of those lines had anything to do with the blessings and promises that were on Jacob's life, because all of his blessings and promises were in the grace of God, his good pleasure given to Jacob for no reason at all. And to understand that deeply, transforms your whole manner of living. That you realize that you are loved because you are loved. You are loved in Christ for no other reason. And you can not lose that. You cannot mess that up. It's impossible. It's impossible. Because it was taken in by faith. And therefore grace is upheld. Romans 4 says grace is upheld. The gospel of grace is upheld. This is the corruption that that he had that could not actually violate the blessings of God. And so, closing. Instead of him being able to corrupt the blessings of Christ, instead of you being able to actually undo the blessings of Christ in your life, it is the blessings of Christ that cleanse you. So, you would think, we would think, if we were thinking like the rest of the world, the rest of every human religion, the rest of every secular mind, that you need to work and earn and perform and do If you do that, you think that maybe you could mess this thing up or corrupt it. But the nature of the blessing, the reason it's inviolable and unable to be violated, is because the blessing itself produces the cleansing needed for salvation. What we see in his life is that Jacob, out of all of his faults, the primary one for him, his corruption, his character flaw, we would say, is he is a deceiver. He is a deceiver. He is a liar. He is a passive-aggressive, not-to-your-face, deceptive manipulator. And you read that in a story and you just hate it. But what you find is what God does with his blessing to Jacob. Is he uses that. He deceives the deceiver. God stands by his promise to transform Jacob through the blessing. Of all the people in the world, he lands in the household Of a man who is better at his own game. Do you see? The deceiver is being deceived. The trickster is being tricked. Jacob is always trying to get ahead. He's always trying to get an angle. To better his lot in life. And every time he does. God breaks him for it. And he actually goes lower. And so here he lands into the house of Laban. Jacob wanted to get ahead. Instead, he spends 14 years just trying to get married. Jacob wanted to get ahead and own all the property of his household, even more than his brother. But here he has no householder money at all. He's living as a son inside of his father-in-law's house. He has nothing to his name. He wanted to get ahead. He wanted to circumvent the firstborn privileges of his older brother to have the money. And here, it's the firstborn privileges of his first wife that trick him into marrying her. God is flipping it all. You see, the reason you know you're blessed, the reason you know you're in the gospel of Christ, is that he's flipping all of your sins upon you and breaking you in them. He is actually, you cannot corrupt the blessings of God. In fact, the blessings of God will cleanse you. It works the other way. God will sanctify us. He will make us holy. Without holiness, we're told, it is impossible to see God. And the blessing is that you will have a beatific, that is, a blessed vision of the glory of Jesus Christ. And you cannot look upon Him in your sin. So if you're going to have that blessing, He's got a whole lot of scrubbing to do with you. And so therefore, He will break you in your sin. And if you're a deceiver, you will be deceived. He will... Flip your sins upon you and bring perfect justice for the purpose of not breaking you, but restoring you, sanctifying you, transforming you like a good father. You've been blessed. You've been brought into his home. He will discipline you for your good. And you see, as we look through Jacob's story, he will be a different man by the time we're done with him. Rather, by the time God is done with him. What about you? What about me? Can you see the wisdom of why we preach through the narratives of Genesis? Because now you are being given tools by which to try in the perspicuous perspective of God from the top down to look at your own life for a minute. Get out of yourself. Why do you experience that trial? Why blessing? <clears throat> in the um, in the Old Testament there was Um, A problem with Israel, they were rebelling against God, and God sent venomous snakes upon them. And um, those snakes were biting them and killing them. They were called fiery snakes, probably because of the venom burning through their arms or legs, wherever they're bit. And uh, God commanded, in Numbers 20, God commanded Moses to uh, take a bronze serpent and put it on a pole... And it was like this, as simple as it is. Anyone who would just look at the snake would be healed. The venom would just go away and they wouldn't die. What makes this blessing impossible of losing, impossible of being corrupted, is that within the confines of this covenant, this promise that was given, everything that would normally defile you, actually heals you. So normally, Jacob would die and go to hell for being a deceiver and a wretched sinner. But he's inside this covenant blessing that was given to him. And now his deception is actually working out sanctification in his own soul. He's receiving the side of deception that he's been dishing out. And it's changing his mind. He's seeing his sin for the first time. Have you been there? Do you really know Jesus? So, what normally would kill you, maybe getting bit by a snake, God can take that very same thing and turn it into your salvation. That if you were to look upon this bronze snake. It's not poison but life. And Jesus said as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness. So must the son of man be lifted upon a cross. All your murderous thoughts. All the blood guilt upon your head. That should defile you. But God has taken blood. And sprinkled you with it. And that blood now cleanses you. All of your sin that should make you worthy of death was placed on Christ. And he speaks it over you, and now that sin placed on him cleanses you. Jacob was a deceiver. But a deception fell upon Christ. And now all the deception he experiences in his life cleanses him and makes him holy. Look upon that bronze snake. Jesus likened himself to a snake for you. For you. You were the cursed snake. And he said, I will put on snake skin. I will come down to those slithering sinners down there and I will let them kill me. And in that, defiling, venomous as we are with our words and sinful speech, he let us bite him all over. And now he said, look to me so that you might not die of your venom. How could that blessing fail when it takes the very thing of death and turns it into life? Therefore, we have only begun here this morning to unravel what was given to Jacob. And what is yours and all of ours who claim Jesus Christ? Dear Father, Lord, this blessing is marvelous and is preparing us for things we know not what. Lord, we pray, Lord, that we would not be like Jacob. We would not be deceivers, but Lord, we know we are. Lord, we pray that we would not ruin our families, but we know we do. Lord, we pray that we would not be envious like his wives and cruel. But we know we are. But Lord, what we also know, and I pray that we may never forget as a church, is that we are blessed and that your blessings cannot be undone and that you, you use even our own sin for our salvation. In Jesus' name, do this, do this again and again until we meet you that final great day and behold of your glory. Amen.